What it do, fam? It has been a minute since I have released a podcast episode because, as most of you know, I have started a new job as COO of Warrior Poet, and yeah, boy, it's been busy. To be frank, it's been so long since I've done a podcast intro where I don't even know what the fuck I'm supposed to talk about on these things. So I'm just going to babble and ramble and see what arises. Uh, Happy New Year. My birthday was also the new year. Um, Did some Wachuma on my birthday and hiked outside for like five or six hours and ended up listening to Dune, the audiobook, for like three of those hours. Highly recommend anyone who hasn't checked it out to check out the Audible version of Dune. Um, They have a whole voice cast. There's probably like 12 actors and they bring in like orchestral music when the scene's really dope. It's great. Uh, Does that pertain to this podcast episode? No, it doesn't. Um, Graham, can you please give me some some slack? I'm I'm over here trying... Okay. And so uh, this podcast episode is going to be the Instagram live that I did about a week ago, where I was just answering y'all's questions. Um, you guys ask great questions and you make it a lot of fun to do those Instagram lives. And so those are some things that I can start to do with the workload that I have. And I will make them podcast episodes when I can. I do have a couple of uh, episodes scheduled that are going to be coming out probably in the next month. We got a couple of bangers. I'm not going to announce specifically because maybe they will cancel and I don't want to do that to you, but they'll be good. And also we are going to be installing a studio here in the house and that is going to allow for much more consistent podcasts. And also we're going to start a YouTube channel because I know you motherfuckers want to see my balding bearded ass on a, on a screen. And so that's coming soon, probably in the next two months. Uh, will be probably the first episode or so that you guys will be able to see. So that's cool. That's exciting. Also, something that I haven't shared with really anyone, I've just started doing it, is one of my New Year's resolutions was to start a public journal that I write in every day. And I just started it and didn't tell anybody about it because some of those journal articles I don't want to promote to anyone. (laughs) But some of them are actually really potent and dope. And it's been a really cool exercise to start to do this. So if you want to check those out, you can go to ericgodsey.com and there's a new banner at the top that says my journal and it'll take you to a free Substack list um, ordered by date. Because one of the ideas that I've been playing with is this idea of spiritual skepticism. And it's, at least for me, it's the merger of my former self, which was a pretty staunched skeptic and my current self, which is someone who has experienced things that to try to be skeptical about them feels like I'm gaslighting my own gnosis. And that feels fundamentally out of tune with my dharma. So it also feels like there's a lot of people in the spiritual space that would just be more effective people in the world if they learned the principles of skepticism. And there's a lot of people who identify as skeptics that could learn a lot of things from spiritual practices and what gnosis feels like and really what the domain that skepticism is helpful in and then the domain which skepticism is not helpful. 
And my dramatic weird ass calls that the two worlds problem. And I talk about it a little bit in some of my journal articles, but essentially there is a realm of experience where skepticism, specifically scientifically based skepticism and an understanding of how we have evolved to deceive ourselves is super useful. And it's basically anything in the domain where natural laws exist. So if you're trying to make a bridge, I don't care what type of vision you had on ketamine. If you don't know how to do engineering, you're going to hurt people. But then there's a realm that is essentially the psyche that is not available to or is not confined by the laws of physics or the laws of chemistry where you have visions, where you have dreams where you have symbolic images that might spontaneously arise while you're doing body work or breath work. And if you bring skepticism to those type of phenomena, I think that you're significantly impairing how effective you can be at communicating with the ancient intelligence inside of you that speaks through symbols. So that's a thing that I've been playing with that has just come out of me trying to do this journaling thing. So that's dope. And then the other download that I hope I can actually manifest on because uh, I'm really good at having ideas where I can see how it's going to be super dope. I'm decent at actually executing on them. But one of the things I'm really passionate about once we get the studio and we start doing these videos is I want to start a YouTube channel that specifically focuses on this idea that I'm currently playing with calling Dharma Weavers. And it's essentially the idea that the most potent way to pursue and be in your dharma in this culture is to learn how to be an entrepreneur. And the word entrepreneur, I think, is something that needs to be reclaimed. But essentially, there's a way to play the game of life, where if you learn some of the rules of the current game, you can be financially rewarded and freed from the burden of having to worry about finances because you build things that help people that are in alignment with your dharma. That to me feels like the most potent way to play the game, especially if you're trying to help people. So that story feels like it needs some storytellers because there's a lot of spiritually inclined people who I know who genuinely help people, but they have so many weird stories about money that it keeps them from helping as many people as they could. And then there's a bunch of people who are good at making money that almost disassociate from how they make money and think that it's not wounding their soul if it is fundamentally used to exploit people or to make money just for the sake of making money without considering what it's doing for the environment, what it's doing to the people you try to help. And that shit's not sustainable. And I think it wounds our psyches. So I think this is an interesting project to start for people who want to be free from money, but don't know how to do it in a way that feels like it's in alignment with their spiritual inclinations. And for people who want to make money and think that you can make money in a way, in any way, and that it not affect like the quality of your soul. Because I don't think that that's true. So that's something that I plan to be working on. And if you don't see something coming 
out with that vibe in the next two months, write angry emails to Graham and Graham don't fucking tell me about those emails, but just let it make you actually not believe in my integrity and just slowly erode our relationship. <laughs> um, as always, if you want to stay connected with what's going on in my life, uh, check out the newsletter. I'm pretty consistent on that. Uh, it's at erigazzi.com. Um, if you're interested in journaling, I got two courses for you. They're pretty good. And uh, yeah, thank you for your attention and your time. I motherfucking love you and more stuff is coming. Please enjoy. What it do, fam? It has been a minute since I've had time to do one of these. And I had a Sunday afternoon and I wanted to do one. I took some methylene blue today, so I got some blue going on in my mouth. Going to give you guys some moments to get in here. <clears throat> now we're going to answer some motherfucking questions. <clears throat> and I'm just going to go randomly and we'll see. So the first question is, what's the value of space to you and how anchored do you feel in it in relationship to your ego? <clears throat> uh, maybe I should have uh, checked these questions before I started answering them. What is the value of space? Um, well, without space, I would not be a being. I'm a spatially and temporally bound thing. My body is. But I'm going to assume maybe you mean like having your own space to work. And uh, it's super important to me. One thing is I don't let any app on my phone send me a push notification uh, my phone's always on Do Not Disturbed. And that gives me a psychological sense of having my own space. And like, I'm in my room right now. And every time I walk in my room, I feel almost like the room hugs me. Like I have taken the time to <clears throat> tend to my room in a way where it feels beautiful. And it feels fun. And our physical environment suggests to us about how to behave and uh it does matter a lot to me and i love it but i don't know how that really connects to my ego <clears throat> uh, i love you guys and i've missed doing these uh, i've been super busy with a new job and just thank you guys for showing up and for asking all these questions <clears throat> so the next one is how do you stand in your power in the face of fear of the unknown? I was listening to a podcast recently and somebody said a quote that gave me goosebumps for more than a minute. And the quote was from Paul Selig and it was from his new book, The Kingdom. And the quote was something like this. As soon as you realize that God is either everything or nothing, a.k.a. everything, then you will realize that God is waiting for you in the unknown. When you realize that God is waiting for you in the unknown, that is the birth of faith. Faith is fundamentally the belief that the fundamentally benevolent intelligence that seems to be giving form to quantum potentiality and body and desk and phone is also in the unknown and it's waiting for you. And specifically, I think that the mythopoetic story of the hero's journey 
is how I confront the unknown. It's essentially the, the belief that, you know, the unknown is like the archetypical dragon and the unknown can kill you. But the unknown also possesses everything that you don't yet know. So like all the dopest shit is also waiting for you in the unknown. And like what I've been doing in this new job that I've been in for the last two months is <clears throat> trust my body, trust my intuition to look where I need to look, tell the truth and do it kindly. And basically just keep exposing yourself to shit that makes you feel uncomfortable. Trust your intuition when you're called to look at a certain thing. Tell the truth to the best of your ability in the moment and try to do it all kindly, you know? It's even better if you can make a couple of jokes or terrible puns. <clears throat> so some of these questions, for whatever reason, will not load. I think it's because the algorithm knows that uh, you're not a part of the fact checkers. Presently, what element of your life is difficult for you to feel or to interact with? <sighs> to be honest, uh, the part of my life that I'm having difficulty connecting with is like romantic relationship. So an interesting thing that I know is true for me is that my default is to place whatever romantic relationship I'm in very high in my Dharma pyramid. And um, because I've said yes to this new job, it's demanded a new level of cognitive resources in me where I haven't been able to give the amount of energy that I normally like to give in relationship. And I also am starting this process of really healing the trauma in my body, specifically around when I got rotator cuff surgery when I was 17 on my right shoulder. And then I got addicted to painkillers for probably about seven months. And I didn't realize it until maybe a couple of years ago, but I spent probably eight years in a relationship with my body where I was afraid to sit on the ground because I was afraid of having a back spasm. I was afraid to travel because I was afraid of having a back spasm. Um, I was afraid to, I was just afraid in my body all the time. And the thing that I'm being called to right now is to date my body the way that I would date a romantic partner. Because what I do effortlessly is like, I listen and I like really pay attention and I'm really present and I'm able to like see things that they don't see about them and, you know, tell beautiful stories and think of like poems to send and all, all this sort of stuff. And I can feel that my body is like, motherfucker, you've never dated me. And so I'm in this process right now where I'm trying to commit to my body the way that I effortlessly commit to romantic relationships. Top three book recommendations. So this, cha this is changing for me because uh, in the last year, this has been the year where it feels like I've really connected to uh, the state of the world in a way that I haven't most of my life. Most of my life, 
I have been called to the past, like to read the geniuses and the great creators and psychotherapists and all sorts of that stuff from the past. And I've spent a lot of my time studying like geniuses from the past, but not really paying attention to like what's happening in current times. And my dreams, most of my adult life, was assuming that culture would continue stably enough so that I could embed my dream inside of the culture that I grew up in. And it hasn't been until this year uh, with my awakening to fundamentally my connection to the earth in a way that I've been disassociated from my entire life that then led me to really feeling the immensity of the ecological condition that we're in and the momentum that Western culture is carrying the ecological condition further that then brought me to this thing called uh, existential risk theory that fucking gave me an existential crisis because fundamentally there's a lot of really smart people who all agree if we don't make radical change in the next 100 to 200 years, the chances of humanity existing on this planet is low. And so that's changing, that has significantly changed the direction that my daemon has pointed my dharma to unfold. And so now the books that I would recommend are different than what they used to be. The first book that I would recommend <clears throat> is Recapture the Rapture by Jamie Wheel. Uh, what would, the second book I would recommend would be Prometheus Rising by Robert Anton Wilson. And the third book that I would recommend would be a blank motherfucking journal. So you could start journaling every day. So you have a place and a practice to begin to tell yourself the motherfucking truth, because that's going to guide you in a way that is more powerful than what most books will do for you. Because we all got a book and it's the way that we explain existence to ourselves. And so if you don't have a practice of making contact with the way that you myth make your own life, that's more important than reading almost any book that you can go find. So those would be the three books that I would recommend. Um, <clears throat> again, when I click on a lot of these questions, it doesn't load some of them. Okay. I have been secretly battling depression for years. Does it ever end? Or a fight you live with and need to control? <clears throat> so this is a really interesting question. Um, there's a couple of things here. There is so much stuff that I could share about depression. But one of the things to feel into is that if it feels like you are secretly battling depression... What that likely implies is that you don't have a single person in your life that you have cultivated the opportunity to be in complete truth with. And that the really interesting thing is that the chances of you having depression, if you don't feel that you have a single person in your life that you can be fully seen by, actually goes up dramatically. And if you have someone in your life that you feel that you can be fully seen by, your ability to withstand depression and also to have resilience to experiences that might trigger depression improves deeply because we are fundamentally tribal beings. The research on loneliness is really interesting, and it's that loneliness is not correlated to the amount of people that are around you. 
loneliness is correlated to the amount of people that you feel you are fully seen by. And fundamentally, what allows you to be seen is being vulnerable. And so many of us have people around us, but we feel lonely because we haven't cultivated vulnerability in those relationships. Some of those relationships can't hold vulnerability, but there might be some that could if you sought to bring it there. Because fundamentally, to be vulnerable, uh, you have to do shit that's scary. And the scary shit is to admit the things that you're feeling. And so a thing to feel into, like a, a technique to feel into is that if you wrote a letter to yourself where you were completely honest about everything that is happening for you inside of you, is there anyone in your life that you could share it with? And the answer is no. The invitation could be, what can I begin to do with my current relationships to cultivate more vulnerability? And that in the act of cultivating vulnerability, you're actually going to activate something psychically inside of you where your ability to navigate depression will improve. But depression is also a really interesting thing to feel into. Depression is a word that we have given a set of phenomenological experiences. And most of us, our story about depression is that fundamentally depression is the result of something being wrong with your machinery. And if you ingest the right thing outside of you, it can fix your machinery in a way where then you don't feel depressed. There's a different lens that I personally resonate with deeply, and it's that depression is an intelligent signal from your body that something is out of alignment, that if you brought it into alignment, the icon on your engine dashboard that something is wrong, which it would be the feeling of depression would go away. And there are biological things that you can do to really give your nervous system the chance to be in its best state. And then there are psychological functions that you can do to help bring alignment in a way where the felt sense of depression might go away. So when it comes to the biology, this is like where the area of biohacking is really effective. Fundamentally, we are an animal that has a specific set of biological requirements that if we meet those requirements, our biology is optimized. And if we don't have those requirements, our biology is deeply impaired. And it's more likely that we would feel depressed depending on the circumstances in our life. And so like the big one is sleep. Do you get seven to eight hours of high quality sleep? And if the answer is no, there are very specific and technical things that you can begin to do to improve your sleep. And then it's, do you get enough sunlight per day? Like we are meant to be in the sun and most of us are deficient in vitamin D. Do you drink enough water? Do you drink high quality water? Do you avoid foods that create inflammation because there's a high correlation between high inflammatory diets and having the felt sense of depression? And so there's a bunch of biological things that you can begin to do that don't cost any extra money that can begin to really cultivate your biological resilience to stressors. And then there's a whole host of psychological things that you can do that might be the things that must be done in order for you to, quote unquote, not feel like you're depressed. 
One of the things that we have evolved to need is the felt sense that there is a future that we believe in, that we are actively trying to make manifest in the present, and that we take actions every day that feel like they're making progress towards that ideal future. And that if you don't have that, your biological feedback mechanism about whether or not to feel positive emotion gets all skewed and weird. And so one of the things that you can do is you can get really clear on what is your ideal future that you're trying to transform your present into. And then the next thing to feel into is like, what would be the daily habits that that ideal version of me would do every day? And you could begin the slow process of doing some of those things. And so like for me, it's writing, it's speaking, it's meditating, it's working out. Another thing to feel into that's super interesting is Carl Jung, who is my favorite psychologist of all time. He has some really poignant quotes where he fundamentally believed that the way to cure the neurotic is to get them to make art. That fundamentally, the like the fundamental function of the human spirit from Carl Jung's standpoint is to be an artist. It's to express. It's to bring forward the thing inside of you that feels like it's demanding must be in the world. And that if you don't do that, um, the daemon feels like a demon, like this internal voice that's trying to guide you to express in the way that you are meant to express will start to attack you it feels like it's not being honored. Another thing to feel into is to make a commitment to telling the truth. There is something really powerful about the word. You know, the beginning of the Bible is first there was the word. Language is one of the most powerful parts of a human being. And when you lie, you corrupt that force. And every time that you tell a lie, you're actually corrupting the sense-making apparatus inside of you because whenever you lie, you are putting out inauthentic data. And whatever the feedback you get from other humans as a result of lying is also corrupted data. And it, it actually fucks with your ability to like make contact with reality in a way that feels good to the human nervous system because the human nervous system wants to figure out how to survive and move in this reality. And so making like a spiritual commitment to tell the truth is a really powerful and liberating thing that you can do. And the interesting thing is that if you see depression as a intelligent feedback from your biology trying to guide you to behave differently, as you start to tell the truth, you might end that relationship in your life that you knew was asking for you to end maybe a year ago, but you haven't done it yet. Or maybe speaking the truth will transform the type of job that you have that you've been unhappy with for a long time. Or maybe speaking the truth will get you to a point where you can no longer do that disassociative, addictive behavior that you've done to try to numb yourself. Or telling the truth might actually bring you into a place of love and vulnerability and connection with someone in your life that you've been yearning for for a long time. One of my favorite personal beliefs to play with is the belief that if I speak and act my truth, 
to the best of my ability, whatever happens as a result of that is the best possible thing that can happen. And it's fucking worked out for me so far. And so those are a couple of things that you can do when it comes to depression. The way that I see depression to the next part of your question is, does it ever end? If you are a dancer and you're dancing to the music, your body will always give you the feedback that you're off rhythm whenever you're off rhythm. But whenever you fall back into rhythm, that felt sense of like, I don't quite have the flow will go away. To the degree that your nervous system is working, depression will always come back when you are out of alignment from this perspective that I'm offering that I hold. And that so it's always with you to the degree that it's always here to help you when you're out of alignment. And that if you learn how to, and when you learn to receive it as feedback, it is not something that you have to control. It's something that you can surrender into because it's guiding you. So that's a couple of things that I would offer when it comes to depression. Any new practices that you've discovered lately that you are enjoying? Um, Yeah. So I've started this new job as COO of Warrior Poet, which is the company that Aubrey founded a while ago. And I read this book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. And one of the things, one of the commitments of being in like conscious leadership is the commitment to eliminate gossip. And this has been profoundly powerful in my work life and in my personal life. Gossip is one of the most eroding forces when it comes to the like coherence and beauty that is trying to make itself manifest through any group of people. When you gossip, you're doing a few things. So we only have the urge to gossip when someone acts in a way that triggers us. Like fundamentally, we gossip when we're triggered. And instead of speaking to the person who triggered you, you're going to a third person and you begin to say things in a way that you would not say to the person that triggered you, to this other person. Most of the time when we gossip, we're exaggerating, we're giving one side of the story and we're, we're painting the person who is not present in like the worst possible light And we're actually polluting the third person's perspective of the person who's not present. We don't give the person who's not present the opportunity to grow and evolve because in gossip, there's always some truth. There's always some gold. And in gossip, there's always a lot of bullshit that's actually not true. And so you rob the person who triggered you the opportunity of mining the gold in your feedback. You rob yourself of the opportunity of being disillusioned in your projections and the part of your belief about the story that aren't true. And you're corrupting someone else's perspective of this other person. And we've seen what this has done in our families. All of us come from families where there's gossip, where you are talking about someone else in the family in a way where you wouldn't have the courage to talk to them that way that you are talking about them. 
and it's corrosive. And what that book offers is to make the commitment that if anyone is ever speaking to you about someone else in a way that they would not say that exact thing in the exact way that they are saying it, you either stop it or you transform the conversation into one where you will listen to them if they commit to then go having a conversation with that other person. Because there is something that happens in gossip where we are trying to process, like, what the fuck just happened in that meeting? Or what the fuck was that that just happened at dinner? And we're seeking to go talk to someone else to try to process what has happened. But if we do that without the commitment to ever go talk to the other person, the chances of us exaggerating and just using sloppy thinking and the recounting of the story, we're actually making all of us more confused about what the truth is. Like I know everyone here knows what it's like when one of your friends is telling you a story about a situation that they were in and you can feel that they're exaggerating to you about like, and then I said, what the fuck are you talking about? How could you do that? And the truth is that's not what that motherfucker said to the other person. And that's not how they said it to the other person. And you're basically agreeing to be in this like fake reality that actually like brings everyone further away from the truth of what is happening. So what that book teaches in that chapter is how to do something called a clearing conversation. And a clearing conversation is that when you feel triggered by someone to the point where you want to go gossip, you basically do this worksheet type thing where you write down, what are the facts? And the facts are the things that could be observed by a camera. So like, what are the things that actually happen that aren't opinion or judgment or stories? And then you get really clear on what the facts are. And then you write down, what is the story I am telling about those facts? So the fact might be that your uncle talked about how Trump really should not have been, you know, banned from Twitter or whatever. And then there's the story that you're telling yourself because that fact happened. And there's a bunch of bullshit there. And then you basically write down, what is my feeling? Like, what are the things that are coming up for me that I feel? Like, am I angry? Am I sad? Am I afraid? Am I joyful? Whatever. And then you write out, what part of this am I responsible for? Like, one of the things that I'm constantly tracking when someone is telling me a story is if the other person who is not present sounds like a sociopath or they sound crazy or they sound evil, I think you're lying to me. I think that you're exaggerating. And I start to try to ask questions to try to make more contact with reality. And so one of the things that I ask is, if this person were present, what is the story that they would tell me about what happened? Just so I can begin to anchor the conversation. And that in order to make someone sound evil or to make someone else sound crazy, you have to tell the story in a way where you have absolutely no part in it going badly, where, you, where you're the victim or you're the hero. And there's no part of you that contributed to whatever the situation is. And at least in my life and in my experience, that's never fucking true. And then you end this worksheet with what is my request slash what is my desire? And then once you've written this out, you go talk to the person who triggered you. You go talk to the person that you're going to gossip about. And what you'll find 
is that if you do that type of conversation well, you have the opportunity to make that person grow. You're going to grow because you have to have that uncomfortable conversation. And then you also don't pollute the other person's perspective of that other person. And so when it comes to being a leader in a group, and all of us have the opportunity to choose to be a leader in our family, and all of us are a part of some group somewhere where we can choose to be a leader. And when we participate in gossip, we are committing to not be a leader. And when we choose to have these hard conversations, we're committing to be a leader, and it makes the entire group better. So that's a practice that I've been really excited about both doing myself and empowering everyone that I work with to do it too. Because like the company that I work for, we are trying to do dope shit in the world. We're trying to do hard dope shit in the world. And if we are not making the commitment to not gossip, we're fucking hypocrites. And I don't want to work for a company where we're hypocrites. So I'm trying not to be a motherfucking hypocrite. You know what I'm saying? What can we do as individuals to help steer the planet towards awakening instead of destruction? So this is a big and heavy question and something that I have been trying to figure out for the last four months after I really connected to existential risk theory. And fundamentally, what I have gotten to is saving the planet is going to be a multi-generational project. And it feels like where we need to start is to bring coherence to how we have conversations with each other so that we can begin to make sense of the big problems more clearly. And then we can begin to act at scale to deal with some of these problems. And so the metaphor that I use that really helps me understand this is a healthy body like a healthy human body, is made up of billions of cells. Every individual cell, if taken out of the body and put, in, and put into a Petri dish, has the ability to grow on its own, which means that on some biological level, every cell is a functional individual entity. But cells naturally communicate with each other in such a way in the body where they recognize that they are serving some higher function and these individual entities work with each other in a way that creates this thing that's called emergence. And emergence is a scientific term for when a bunch of the same type of thing comes together in a way that creates a phenomena that none of the individual parts can do on their own. So what that means is that there's a bunch of things that go into a cell that allow for a cell to then begin to do respiration. But none of those individual things on their own are able to do the biological function of respiration. No cell has the ability to do an Instagram live and start to talk to other people, but enough cells coming together in a coherent way are able to produce this thing that has self-aware consciousness that can do a fucking Instagram live. Humans, I think, are the cells of the planet and we have forgotten that we are the cells of, of the planet. When an individual cell's ability to communicate with other cells breaks down to the degree where it believes that it's 
an individual cell, that is actually what triggers it to begin to act cancerous. A cell that loses its ability to communicate with other cells that believes that it's now an individual cell begins to act cancerous. And so it begins to maximize its biological growth at the expense of the body that it's actually a part of. And I think that's what a human does when it's significantly disassociated from other cells to the point where it thinks it's alone. We are social animals. Culture has evolved in a way where most of us live in these square boxes where with, with almost no one else, we are not a part of a community that really connects us to the fact that we are a part of a larger thing. And so what causes a cancerous cell to become cancerous fundamentally is the erosion of its ability to communicate properly with other cells to realize it's a part of a larger thing. And so I think the big project for our generation is to heal the way that we communicate with each other. And if you feel what has happened in our culture the last five to six years is our fracturedness and being able to talk to people that we don't agree with is at its highest expression that it's ever been. Everyone on here likely has people in their life that they don't talk to anymore because that person believes something that they don't agree with and they don't know how to have a conversation with them. And so the thing that I'm most empowered and excited by to do to try to help the planet is to try to revolutionize the way that we talk to the parts of this human body, of this earth body, which are other people, in a way where we can remember that we are actually a single thing. And fundamentally, if the earth doesn't survive, we die. And there are things that are happening that if we were able to communicate with each other in a coherent way, we would be able to make sense of what are the things that are really important to be using our collective technology and power to try to solve. And that I think every time that you lie, you're actually contributing to the quote unquote destruction of the planet. And that's really heavy. And I don't suggest anyone try to take on that burden of responsibility if it doesn't feel like it resonates with you. But I also believe that every time that you put in the effort to communicate with someone that you don't agree with in a way that you guys can find common ground, you are actively contributing to a little iota of us figuring out a little bit more how the fuck we can make this work in a way where our children's children can drink the water on this planet and can breathe the air on this planet. So that's kind of like a psychological lens that I think is the most important thing that we can begin to do when it comes to, you know, trying not to contribute to the destruction of the planet. And then I think a really technical thing that you can begin to do, a pragmatic thing, that is something that everyone here can begin to do is start a composting practice and start a garden. Start to do something that can connect you to the majesty of nature. Most of us, myself included, most of my life, I have been completely disassociated from nature. Like 
My weak ass wants my air conditioning. I want my heater. I want my shoes. I want my car. I want to be inside of a quote unquote stable reality. But we are of nature. And anything that you can do to bring a little bit more nature into your life is going to start to remind the thing in you that actually knows that you are a cell of this planet and that you are of this planet. And that if your life is not in alignment with what is for the good of nature, you're going to suffer. And so... Cultivate having hard conversations and tell the truth, I think, is the psychological thing that we can do. And then the like practical thing that we can do is anything that can connect you more to nature. And for most of us, it's like start a fucking compost, like start a compost and feel what it feels like to watch nature perform alchemy and to turn rotten food into soil that then can give birth to fucking new life. And then if you have the capability, start a garden, learn to grow. I think one of the biggest like like cultural gaslighting stories is that only some people have a quote unquote green thumb. I'd call bullshit on that. In the same way, every single human knows how to dance when they're a baby. And then culture teaches them how to judge themselves in a way where people can then say the ultimate lie, which is that they don't know how to dance, which is bullshit. I think all of us know how to be with nature in a way that cultivates nature because all of us are the descendants of thousands of generations of people that were in alignment with nature. Your DNA knows how to be in alignment with nature. It needs to be given the opportunities to remember. So those are some of the things that I would offer that I think help, that I think are dope. God, you guys ask a lot of dope questions. And sometimes these dope questions don't load. And I'm just scrolling through them at random. How do you recommend to allow yourself to love again and then to love deeper to strengthen your heart? So this is an interesting question. Um, One of the things to feel into is that uh, your heart... Hmm, how do I want to approach this? Fundamentally, the first thing is to recognize that the access to your creativity and the access to your life force is in proportion to how open your heart is. And a closed heart can't make good art is something that I believe. And fundamentally, the thing that we all have to learn in order to have an open heart is we have to basically accept the fact that if you are a temporal thing and you love something, you will know grief. And we are a culture that is terrible at dancing with grief because we're a culture that is in denial of death. And grief is like the echo of death. And grief is evidence that you as a temporal being have courageously chosen to love something. Because to love anything as a temporal being is to know, is is to guarantee that you will know grief. And I think that learning how to be with grief in a way where it deepens your connection to the beauty of life is probably the way to, quote unquote, love more deeply and to, quote unquote, strengthen your heart. And I think that a big part of it is just like letting yourself cry, 
giving yourself permission that to cry is one of the most divine things that you can do. Because one of the things that I've connected to in the last couple of years is humans are the only creatures that truly weep and that laugh. And that weeping and laughter are different spectrums of the same thing. And I think that they're actually like evidence that we are like a divine type of thing. We have the knowledge of death. And like we're the only thing that we can understand that seems to have the awareness that we know that we're going to die. And that like laughter and weeping are like the ultimate emotional catharsis to the fact that we know that we're going to die. And most of us repress the fuck out of our natural tendency to cry. And that crying seems to be one of the most potent ways that the body tries to process grief. And so if you repress crying, you repress grief. And if you repress grief, you repress love. And if you repress love, you repress your creative urge to be a participatory function in life. And that your heart is the thing that's constantly asking you, like, love. And in order to love, you have to know grief. And so I think one of the things that you could feel into is... Um, what is the grief that I have not allowed myself to feel? Because if you're asking this question, it likely means that you have known heartbreak or heartache and that you likely have not felt fully and celebrated fully the sacredness of the grief that was a part of that. And that if you did, I think the natural expression that would come from that is a desire to love. Because the interesting thing about grief is it reminds you that everything that you have now will one day be gone. And to really feel that fully, like it makes you want to like hug a little bit more tightly, to kiss a little bit more passionately, to make art whenever you feel the desire to make art, to fucking write poetry, to connect with the people in your life that you have the opportunity to connect with. And so a book that I would recommend that's incredible there's a couple of books. I would recommend that you check out uh, The Smell of Rain on Dust. And then also, like, some, I think it's called, like, The Edge of Sorrow. There might be an adjective in front of edge. But if you can start to embrace grief, I think that you will naturally open your heart. Because it's, 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 it's our birthright to have an open heart. <clears throat> Damn it, there's some really good questions that this mother, this fucking app will not open, but it'd be what it'd be. I feel I judge others since I'm such a tough critic on myself. Ways to lessen judgment. This is a juicy one. Um, okay, so one of the things to feel into is that in order for you to have survived your childhood, you had to learn what was expected of you behaviorally by the people in your immediate environment that had the power, aka your parents, your teachers, your coaches, and culture as such. 
And that a part of you that saved your life was the part of you that was essentially scanning scanning the tribe for the implicit and explicit rules about how to behave. But once you get to be in adulthood, you know, in your, your 20s and your 30s and your 40s, you have the ability to update that part of your psyche that downloaded those rules. And judgments are fundamentally rules that you've downloaded about how you either ought or should not be. And some of those rules might be adaptive, and a lot of them are probably bullshit. And to the degree that we are chained by our own judgment is the degree to which we are judgmental of others. And there's a couple of different ways that you can approach this. One is you can find someone in your life who you admire and you start to interact with them in a way and they don't judge you for the things that you judge yourself for and they become a mirror about, oh, I can maybe update some of my rules around what it means to be judgmental. Another thing that you can do is you can seek to be a guiding force to someone quote unquote younger than you in a way where you provide them the compassion that you wish you had had when you were younger. So you can either be a mentee or a mentor. If you're a mentee and you find the right mentor, they can reflect back at you an updated rule of judgments. And um, if you become the right type of mentor, you can start to basically help other people to the degree that you wish you could have been helped. And it depends on what your makeup is because Many of us are much kinder to other people than we are to ourselves. And so we can actually trick ourselves into updating our inner judgment by caretaking and helping other people. Some of us might be really critical of other people. And what we need is someone else who is above us, quote unquote, that can remind us basically that that these type of judgments don't need to be as intense as they are. And this is a function that a lot of therapy can offer people is that if you find the right type of therapist, they then become this external judge that has a much less intense judge than you have. And over the course of doing therapy with them, you can get to the point where it starts to retrain how you treat yourself. Uh, Cheat code, and I don't recommend this, you know, but this is something that can be done is psychedelics. A responsible use of psychedelics can bring you to states of consciousness where there can really just be this like light flip moment. Like for me, one of the most powerful trips I ever had was the first time that I did MDA. And I think I was like 23 and I did it with my partner at the time. And we just played really beautiful music and we sat on a couch and we watched the sunset and we just, you know, sat and talked. And I had a moment on the MDA where I got to this point where I just realized at a fundamental level, I am a monkey who is trying his best and the monkey is goofy. And there was just this like, clicking that happened inside of me where I realized I'm going to do dumb shit. But a part of me understands I'm programmed on some level to do dumb shit. And there's this part of me, like the way that I describe it is it's like, there's a, there's a zoo caretaker 
And then there's the dumb animal inside of me that is doing dumb shit because it's in a zoo. Like we are in a cultural situation where we are not meant to be in this type of life. And our body is going to do dumb shit in response to being inside of cages. And that if you can be a kind, you know, monkey caretaker and try to guide this monkey to be in a little bit more alignment with what it's meant to be, you will naturally start to make better choices. But there is something about the psychedelic experience that can really help give you the opportunity to see yourself outside of yourself in a way where you can just take a big ass breath and you can relax. The fourth thing that I would offer, so there's being a mentor, there's being a mentee, there's the psychedelic experience. And the fourth one is take stock of what your judgments are and then purposefully do things that scare you, that go against what those judgments might be. So for me, one of my judgments was that um, I'm a bad speaker because I have a stutter. And so I'm not going to do anything where I have to speak in front of a group. I started a podcast. This was probably about four or five years ago. And just doing the thing that I was petrifiedly afraid to do over and over and over and over and over again, I taught myself that that judgment wasn't true. And so you can take, this is a harder one to do because it's scary. But if you purposefully take stock of what your judgments are, and you feel into the ones that you want to update, you can then seek to go do things that are in disaccord with those judgments, and they actually might change the judgment. And the last story that I'll share here is I had a friend who went through some really severe childhood trauma, and she had done all sorts of work on trying to basically heal that trauma. And then she started dating someone where after dating them for about four or five months, a really shameful secret arose that he had been hiding. And this was a secret that he never let anyone in his life know. And it naturally arose in this relationship. And she was able to meet him with an unflinching compassion because of what she had been through. And she was driving home after they had this big, to- this big talk where he, where he shared this thing. And she held it impeccably. And as she was driving home, she realized, like she had this like spiritual moment where she realized, I can give that level of compassion to myself because I've just shown it to myself that I can give it to someone else. And it revolutionized in an instant the way that she judged herself because she she saw how she was able to hold space for the other person. So I guess the fifth one is fall in love and be able to hold the truth of the person Hold the truth of the person you are loving that they've been hiding and you can heal them and yourself at the same time. And it's really dope. (sighs) Tell me about Bufo. I like hearing you tell stories and I have a ceremony coming up. Hmm. The last time that I did Bufo, um, I did it in the presence of two women who were holding space for me. And like the fundamental thing that I felt into in that experience is that 
because of the specific life circumstances that I was born into with the type of family that I had and the type of upbringing that I had, that there is something specific in me that seeks to help the archetypical feminine, like not females specifically, but the archetypical feminine. And that like, for me, that's dreams, that's intuition, that's the idea of the daemon. And then it, it's also actually how women are treated in our culture. And it was such a beautiful experience. And I just wept and I wept and I wept. And also one of the things that DMT based psychedelics tend to reflect to me often is like my soul image is a tree. And um, I just had this knowing that like, if I can be a tree-like force to the people around me, this like grounded, nurturing, shelter-providing thing, that that's what I'm meant to do and that's what I'm good at. And it was beautiful and it was awesome. Bufo is super powerful. Tread Tread carefully. Relationships. How do I work through not putting someone on a pedestal? It feels natural. So this is something that I talk about often. And it's one of the most important things that if you learn will revolutionize the way that you navigate relationships. And fundamentally, it's a Jungian idea. And it's that each of us have a inner ideal other. Whatever type of person we're attracted to, whether or not that's classic heterosexuality or homosexuality or bisexuality or whatever it is, all of us have an inner ideal other that is the type of other that we are attracted to and that we want to be with. When you meet someone and they fit enough of that inner ideal other, the way our consciousness works is you project that inner ideal other onto them. One of the things to feel into is you've lived with yourself your entire life and you barely know who the fuck you are. Full stop. So when you meet someone else and you get that feeling of like, I feel like I've known them forever, or I feel like they're a part of my past lives, or I feel like I'm so comfortable around them and I just want to be around them and it feels so good. The Jungian perspective on this is they feel that way because you actually don't see them. You're interacting with your inner ideal other. And the metaphor that I use that resonates for me is it's like you have an inner movie of your ideal other. And when you find someone who has the just right frame, you project your movie onto their TV. It takes something like six to 14 months of interacting with that person enough where every time they do something specific that is not in alignment with your projection, one of the pixels on your huge TV begins to swap from your projection to who they actually are. And once the percentage of the pixels on the TV gets to like 33%-ish, There's this image reversal thing that happens like when you're looking at an optical illusion, 
you look at it long enough and you only see it one way. And then after watching it enough, you can see that there's this flip of the screen and you're like, oh, now I see the old lady. Whereas before I, I only saw the young woman who had her head turned. Most people, after they've dated someone for about six to 14 months and they have that image reversal moment, they believe that they have fallen out of love or they believe that that other person tricked them <clears throat> or they believe that like it's just done. And then they unconsciously begin to go find someone else to project their ideal other onto. And then they either cheat or they go from relationship to relationship, everyone being like less than two years. <clears throat> and the book that I would recommend for people is, it's a three book series and they're all really short and it's called She, He, and We. And they're all by Robert Johnson. But he's a Jungian psychoanalyst that really goes deep into this thing. And so to your question, the reason it feels natural is that when you find the other and you're unaware of the projection, it's your soul. You're in the Jungian lens, you're projecting your soul onto this other person. And your soul should be the thing that's at the top of your inner hierarchy. But your soul is for you. And when you project it onto the other person, you rob them of the opportunity of actually being in love with them. You're also, you are also destining them to fall in from grace because they cannot be your soul. They're not your soul. And that what Robert Johnson talks about in We, which is the third book in this series, is that you have to reclaim your soul. And to do that is essentially to like start a prayer practice or some type of meditation practice or some type of like expression, either writing or painting or singing or dancing, where you are cultivating, listening to that muse inside of you and you create from it. And so the thing that I would offer for you is read those books feel the really big uncomfortable shit that comes up when you feel into the fact that you've done this your entire life, because we all have, and then cultivate the practices of musing with your soul inside of you, like bringing that thing back inside of the sacred inner cathedral inside of you, and then have a relationship with it. And then that naturally will give you the opportunity to actually connect with the human instead of your projection of your soul. And one of the other things to feel into is there's this Jungian view where there are people who get addicted to having the projection of someone else's soul onto them. And he calls this anima women or animus men. And anima and animus are the Latin male and female version of soul. And so there are many people who are addicted to being the other. Like if someone's in a married relationship or someone's in a long-term relationship, they really love to be the like person on the side because they, they love the feeling of being worshiped basically. And those people have a very hard life because they can only stay with people for a couple of months before they have to go find someone else who will idolize them. And, um, it's not the path to having a long, nurturing, and beautiful relationship.
I followed my inner guidance and it led me to a traumatic experience. Can I still trust it? Oh shit. Okay, so this is this is a really juicy question. <sighs> okay. So, the first thing that I would recommend is if there's anyone who resonates with this question, go check out my podcast called What is Trauma? So, there is a thing, there's a phenomena that trauma researchers have found that they call reenactment. And reenactment is when someone is traumatized, they will unconsciously create situations to put themselves back into the same type of traumatic situation. And so like the classic example is someone who is emotionally or physically or sexually abused as a child will tend to find themselves in relationships where they experience a mental or emotional or physical or sexual abuse. And from my perspective, the way that I see this is that, so what heals trauma, so first off, what creates trauma is fundamentally there's different types of trauma, but the type of classic trauma that most of us know about is what's called shock PTSD or acute PTSD. And it's when you go through a traumatic situation where your biological response to the situation was to freeze. And the freeze response is a evolutionarily adaptive response that prey animals acquire. And in our evolutionary history, we were prey animals. And the freeze response is adaptive because it numbs us so it actually reduces the amount of pain that we feel in the moment. If we don't think we can fight or run from the predator, we'll freeze. Freezing can also trick the predator because most predators have instincts to attack if the prey is running. And that um, it, can also make, it can also make the predator like get lazy where maybe it gets distracted because it thinks that the prey is dead and the prey can go run away. What what animals in the wild will do if they went through the freeze response, once they go find a safe spot, what they do is they tremor. They actually have a huge body. It looks like they're having a seizure, but it's what they're doing is they're like energetically clearing the really powerful energy that froze their body. Humans, for a bunch of different reasons, will like shame or guilt themselves in a way where they don't ever get to have the full body tremor release. And so if that happens, that creates the thing that we call PTSD, where fundamentally your body is staying in a active defensive response as if the predator is still in the immediate environment and it fucks up your sleep, which then fucks up all of your metabolic healing capabilities <clears throat> and that if you can get to a place where you get safe enough to have the full body tremors, you actually discharge the traumatic energy. So that's one way that you can move through trauma. And again, I'd recommend you go check out the podcast because it'll give a lot of details and resources. The other thing that can heal trauma is to actually have a psychic experience where you either literally or symbolically do the action that would have been adaptive in the moment. And this is 
weird because we are weird beings. And with our scientific lens, we don't give enough uh, power to the fact that we are psychic creatures and that you can have a transformational experience without doing anything with your body if you have the right type of imaginal experience. And the details here are kind of hard to track now, but basically you can heal yourself through having a imaginational experience that feels like you claimed whatever the adaptive action would be. Because fundamentally, your nervous system is seeking to understand what would have been the adaptive response in that past painful experience so that if it happened again, we could act more adaptively. And so this thing that we call reenactment, I actually believe that it's the daemon trying to guide you to a healing experience where you're back in the original traumatic type of container, but you act differently than you did before. And this is a contentious and kind of controversial uh, standpoint, but it is also something that I've seen works. And so what I would offer is um, trusting it is in air quotes. I don't think if you have been through trauma, your inner guidance system might be quote unquote miscalibrated. And that if you bring your conscious awareness to it, you can then act in partnership with it to try to heal it. And so what I would offer is that if you know that you've gone through a traumatic experience, I would invite you to do research on trauma. I would invite you to start with the podcast. It's it's a good overview and it can give you more resources to go work with professionals. And then start to do the work with the professionals to de-burden your nervous system of the trauma. And that that will increase your ability to be able to trust your inner guidance. Because fundamentally, your inner guidance is the thing that will be the ultimate compass for you about how to act in the world. I believe that anything that is offering you healing, any institution or any person or any practice, whose goal is not to reconnect you with your inner guidance system, they're hurting you more than they're helping you. And like therapy on some level is, is, acting as your inner guidance system, like holding down that projection for you until you're able to reclaim it in yourself and then they let you go. And I think any good quote unquote healer or therapist or any type of program or practice that's trying to help you, they're like a good parent. A good parent seeks to raise the child in such a way that the child never needs the parent to be a parent again. A wounded parent, seeks to raise a child in a way where the child will never leave the parent because the parent's afraid to be alone. And that happens a lot and it's not okay. I'm going to answer one more question and then uh, I'm going to go. I got a massage. All right. Last question. What is your 10 year outlook on the world? Psychedelics, education, finance, jobs. All right. So this is a hard one. Because of what's going on in the world, I have no motherfucking idea what it's going to look like. But here's what I hope. I hope that psychedelics are completely legal. 
I hope that there are professionals who hold themselves to the highest standard that um, create institutions and programs and places where people are able to go do psychedelics responsibly. There's integration, there's community, and there's intentionality and reverence, and that it's the go-to for people who have almost any type of quote-unquote psychological or biological chronic illness, and that psychedelics is the first thing that comes up for people when they think about how to heal some type of chronic mental or physical disorder. For education, that whole thing's got to be fucking revolutionized. I think one of the biggest... One of the biggest wounds that I see that our classic educational system has taught people is that you can do life wrong. Like what education has taught most of us is that what is successful is the person who can memorize the already known answers and then regurgitate them in the way that they were taught to them. And that that's what it means to be smart. And I could not feel more strongly that that is bullshit. True intelligence is learning through trying and then getting the feedback of your quote unquote failure and then updating your models of reality to then do things that have never been done before. We live in a time where the people who are going to thrive are the people who learn how to learn things that haven't yet been learned. Like those are the people that are going to be the most successful in the world. And so what I would love to see from our educational system 10 years from now is like a natural cultivating of what the child is already curious about. And there's a stewardship that is helping them to think critically by generate, like fundamentally teaching people to be scientists. And the essence of science is not regurgitating the facts. It's to learn the model that is producing the current set of facts and then go testing the model to see where it breaks and then incorporating the failures to update the model and then to sometimes make a brand new model. And that like asking children to sit indoors and regurgitate facts is one of the biggest problems that I see in the educational system. Also, The average child, I think when they're four or five, can name 200 different logos of corporations and can't identify more than three different leaves of trees. If our educational system is not rooted in nature, we are going to continue to produce humans that are disassociated from nature that add to a system that's destroying nature. Like, Getting children into gardens and getting children into wild nature and getting children to play with soil and to try to grow things and plant things and to learn about decay and mycelium, like those are the things that I want to see. When it comes to finance, finance is super interesting. So um, one of the things to feel into when it comes to finance is that fundamentally, one of the first thing one of the first things that tribal communities had to learn how to do is how do we deal with the stranger? Like, how do we deal with the other tribe? 
And the first set of cultural rituals that arose for dealing with the stranger is trade rituals. Like, how do we trade the things that we have with the things that they have? And uh, John Verveke, who is a cognitive psychologist from the University of Toronto, has a whole series on YouTube called The Meaning Crisis, where he really breaks this down. But that trade rituals led eventually to the first initiation rituals. Because as we began to trade, our tribes began to integrate and to interact with other tribes more often. And we had to create a set of rituals to bind our group more tightly together in the face of the stranger so that our tribe could continue. And so he believed that trade rituals led to the creation of initiation rituals, which is what led to the creation of shamanic rituals. Because as we began to play with initiation rituals, we started to realize that some of the initiation rituals created altered states of consciousness and that he believes altered states of consciousness are essentially behaviors that produce flow. And flow fundamentally allows you to integrate a massive amount of data in a way where you have insights, where you have epiphanies, and that the cultures that created more shamanic rituals tended to survive better because they began to learn things about the patterns of nature and the patterns of cycles and how to hunt better and how to like garden better and all sorts of shit. But that once tribes got large enough where we couldn't trade the way that we used to trade, which is fundamentally through barter, we had to create what is called a universal measurement tool. And so instead of being like, I make eggs and you produce cheese and you make shoes, but how many shoes are good for how many eggs are good for how many you know bananas or whatever, that naturally what arose is we had to create some type of symbol that represents value for our trade system. And for a lot of different evolutionary reasons, the thing that naturally emerged in different parts of the world was gold became the best universal measurement tool because it's hard to copy, it's hard to create, and it's hard to fake. Gold became for a long time the best universal measurement tool for exchanging value. Long story short, our current financial system is not backed by gold. It's, it's made up. And there's, it's not a conspiracy, but basically that system sucks. And that system is going to continue to get worse because inflation is going to get higher. Blockchain allows for a type of digital universal measurement tool that is harder to fake than even gold. And so as long as we still have electricity and as long as we still have the blockchain, I see blockchain technology revolutionizing fiat currency. That can go a bunch of different ways. If blockchain technology becomes too antagonistic to the powers that be, the powers that be have the atomic bombs. They have the drones. They, ha they will have AI. And um, if it comes to like a us versus them, you know, blockchain will probably lose. But if it can, if blockchain can produce innovations at a faster rate than what fiat currency is able to do, there might be some type of marriage that happens between the two. And there could be a revolution there. I have no idea how that's going to go. Jobs. Most jobs that could be done 
by if your job is able to be represented in a standard operating procedure, like if your job is something that you're able to teach someone else to do and they don't have to have a specific expertise, it's going to be replaced by robotics. Like that's almost a for sure thing. So most of the grunt work that we have in our economy is going to be replaced by robotics. The type of shit that will never be replaced is like human to human, like I do this creative thing for you if you do this creative thing for me. And so I believe it's Naval Ravikant who called this the gigs economy. And like this whole world of like online coaching is for humans to teach other humans how to do specific human things that is not easily replaceable by robotics. I see that as the future of jobs and that the type of thing that will be the last thing that will ever be able to be reproduced by AI or robotics is art, like human expression. And that I think that like the future of jobs is going to get more and more in the creative and like human to human interaction type realm. And that uh, like if you're a truck driver, it's, it's not, it's not going to last. If you're any type of factory worker, it's not going to last. Um, but that I think that no human soul is happy doing something that could be replaced by robotics. And so I think that that is going to be the future of what jobs will be. And I also don't fucking know we live in the most interesting times with the most change per year that's ever been known. And uh, everyone hold on to the fucking seat of your pants because uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, thank you all for these amazing motherfucking questions. Uh, thank you for tuning in. I will absolutely save this and post this. Um, I have so much fun doing these. You guys ask great fucking questions. Uh, I love you guys very much. And thank you. I hope you guys have a dope ass day. Um, I forgot how to end these. Is it the X up here? I'm just going to do it. All right, here we go.